0: Welcome to Critical Conversations, a series addressing the knowledge crisis. This series will tackle some of the most foundational and pressing conversations of our life and times. Who can we believe or trust? How can we find common ground? How do emotions and social identities impact knowledge? The more we experience information overload, the less certain we are about experts, democratic institutions, political leaders, and opinion-makers. Everything seems uncertain, fragile, precarious. We need to find common ground and a way forward out of this mess. Critical Conversations is for anyone interested in these questions, where together we can listen, share, learn, and act on that learning. This episode of Critical Conversations is a recording of our second event, which took place on October 26, 2021. The event was hosted by Dr. Richard Hill, one of the founders of Critical Conversations, and emceed by Shona Anderson, with presentations by writers and co-editors of the Melbourne-based publishing cooperative, ARENA, Alison Caddick and Timothy Eric Strom. Their presentation was titled, No rhyme or reason, thinking through confusion, contagion, and conspiracy.
1: Everybody, hello, welcome uh, to the second uh, in this seminar series um, run by this new initiative called Critical Conversations, which I'll talk about in a moment. Delighted you could all make it, and um, I hope you're all safely on board. I'm thinking so, and I'm hoping I'm safely on board. (laughs) Um, My name is Richard Hill, as I say. Um, Obviously, first, what what I want to kick off with is uh, to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional custodians of these lands upon which we reside, and to the elders past, present, and emerging. Critical Conversations recognizes that sovereignty over these lands has never been ceded and that the words intentions values and aspirations set out in the uluru statement of the heart offer the best prospect of true reconciliation as i say this is the second in the series the first for those of you who saw the first one that was um, a very successful event involving julian bajani um, live from bristol in england um, and the link to that actually is on the um, critical conversations website um, as are other links on on that website too Um, the aim of critical conversations um, is quite simple really it's to open up a space for serious considered and respectful inquiry and we do so against the background i think of an increasingly hostile atmosphere around ideas beliefs and theories, um, and very often um, a degree of contestation and disagreement and argument that we've, we've not witnessed before. Um, the people who founded Critical Conversations come from, largely from Bimbi. Uh, this has traditionally been a very peaceful community, where there have been disagreements, there's a whole range of people who think different things and believe in different ideas and theories. But what we've seen over recent times is growing hostility, uh, more rigid positions taken, uh, and on some occasions, fairly hostile uh, and antagonistic relationships. And we know about relationships that have broken up um, and uh, where friendships have been compromised as a result of growing disagreements and and claims to truth. So what we're trying to do in critical conversations is really to develop a space for shared conversations. But equally important, Importantly, to talk about what Julian Bajani referred to in his opening lecture, which is about epistemological virtues, which is a long winded way of saying that we need to develop a space where there is respect, where there's a desire for co inquiry, and dare I say it, for the collective pursuit of truth. And we need to try and re- return to the pursuit of common knowledge rather than simply entrenching ourselves. In particular, preferred positions. And this is important for a whole variety of reasons, um, not least because at this moment in history, particularly if we witness what's going on in terms of the climate emergency and the, the, the rather questionable policies this country is pursuing, we need collective, urgent action together and we need that common ground to achieve the changes that we are all seeking. I'd like to say a particular thank you to our two speakers tonight, um, Alison Kadic and Tim Strong, who both are in Melbourne, which has just come out of lockdown and and, and good on you for for coming out of lockdown in Melbourne. And uh, it's been a very difficult time for both of you and for the wider community down there. So uh, I'm very pleased that things are opening up. i also want to thank um, arts northern rivers for offering their continuing support and to our events team uh, shona jenny amy and dale for enabling this evening to 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 happen Um, i'm very uh, grateful to all of you and above all i'd like to say thank you to everyone who's tuned in here this evening to what i hope you find a really stimulating discussion which i'm sure it will be just a brief reminder that um, our next event Um, is also equally as interesting. Um, I'm delighted to report that Professor Sarah Joseph, who's at Griffith University, and she's Professor of Human Rights Law at Griffith, um, will be talking about the question of freedom, a very contested yet important concept which we've seen come to the fore during the the COVID, COVID crisis. That will be happening on the 23rd of November. And if you need information on that, please go to our website. Um, Our website address, by the way, is www.criticalconversation.com. And on that site, you'll find various links uh, to various uh, sites, including a link to the first seminar involving Julian Baggini. We also have a YouTube channel um, um, called Critical Conversations, and we have a Facebook group called Critical Conversations 2. So, as I say, welcome to this evening. Thank you for participating in, I think, what will be a very important discussion. You'll certainly have an opportunity to um, raise some questions uh, and comment. Um, And now I'd like to um, pass over to our MC for this evening, Shona Anderson. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Richard. And as we get into our topic tonight, I thought it would be a good idea to have a little bit of context for our current situation and where the concepts we're tackling come from and who has shaped them. So the history of philosophy, as dense and alienating as it can be to read, has never been just about thinking for thinking's sake. It's always been about answering the core questions about human existence and life on this planet. The philosophers who helped shape their theories of logic, reason, rationality and critical thinking were all deeply involved with the development of the sciences, how we look at and shape our ethics and morality, and also delved into what it means to be human, who gets to be considered human and how people should be treated depending on where they fall along the lines of acceptability. Today, in our physical world and especially in our online one, regular people are still trying to figure out the answers to the broad fundamental questions that philosophers have been arguing over since at least ancient Greece. Is there a God? What is time? What is truth? What can we know? What kinds of people can be considered human and be afforded human rights? Because what most of us don't realize is that at no point has a clear and final decision been made as to the correct way to apply reason, logic, and rationality, or what questions we can expect to be answered by applying them. So with this in mind, while it is so frustrating to see people so skeptical of any information that they're given, that we end up wondering if they believe in anything at all, or are too naively faithful in the most recent thing they've seen posted on Facebook, allowing the conspiracy theories that they're drawn to get into consistently and seamlessly being updated in their minds and the tape being erased on the previous and contradictory theory they held, or believing that critical thinking is simply blocking out any point of view that doesn't confirm to their own biases and preconceptions or as we frequently see some weird stew of all of the above. The flawed thinking and personal biases of the average keyboard warrior are not actually remarkably different to those of the philosophers themselves. Pretty much each and every one of them from Aristotle to Hume and all of the rest of them were deeply flawed, inconsistent people who not unlike their present day cheer squad the Ben Shapiro's and the Jordan Peterson's of the world. The philosophers had a tendency to screech, facts and logic, facts and logic, and then launch into racist and misogynist rants. Our access to technology cannot be overstated in the way that it has impacted the cultural conversations we're engaged in around our understanding of science, medicine, technology itself, what humans matter and to what degree, and where we get our information from and how we use it. Gia Tolentino, who's a writer at the New Yorker and author of the book Trick Mirror, recently said this about our life on the internet. Like surveillance capitalism does to human desire and to love and to personality and to impulse, coal mining does to a mountain. The surface layer is individual affirmation and the sub layer, the layer that makes money for other people is deep, deep depersonalization and existential strip mining. We've been living through both a physically distanced time and what feels like a turn for the worse in the ideological divide within our communities as Richard touched on all of which is propelled by the endless fuel of the internet. Where we are and how we got here feels more and more complicated and confusing while at the same time, the same age old unsettled philosophical questions run through everything we're dealing with. So tonight, as you know, we have two speakers with us who are going to be getting into these subjects, discussing the place that reason and rationality have in our conversations today. How they are and aren't applied, and what role technology plays, particularly in regards to the development and spread of conspiracy theories we're contending with, and influencing our media consumption and our understanding of science. Alison Caddick and Timothy Eric Strom are co-editors of the Melbourne-based publishing cooperative Arena. Alison is an editor of Arena's quarterly print journal, was co-editor of Arena Magazine and is an ARENA Publications Editor with a background in the history and philosophy of science, politics, and social studies. She writes on techno-science, the body, and prospects for social and cultural change. Timothy, who in addition to working as an editor at the ARENA Publishing Cooperative, is an independent writer, He uses political and philosophical approaches to researching the overlap between the realms of technology ecology colonialism and capitalism. He describes himself as being in various shades of precarious employment across several universities and is also the author of the book globalization and surveillance touching back on what Richard said earlier, critical conversations and all of us who are involved with it are absolutely delighted to have Alison and Timothy with us tonight. And I'm sure all of you out there are just as eager as we are to hear them speak. And so without further ado, I'd like to welcome our speakers for the evening, Alison Kadic and Timothy Strom, And I believe that Alison is speaking first. So I would now like to welcome her to the floor. Thank you, Alison.
2: Good. Well, um, thanks very much, Shona, and thanks, Richard. And um, I'm very pleased to be here, as I know Tim is too. Um, I think um, I might be hitting this topic um, less philosophically in one way and certainly within a frame of social theory, which is really where um, ARENA comes from and um, is the project that um, we're involved with um, so, look, I'm, we're speaking each for 15 minutes. That's not very long. Um, uh, um, the structure of what I'm going to say is that I, uh, I've got a few questions that are going to lead off. Um, two of the questions are arising from the terms in the, the flyer blurb, which I thought were interesting. Um, the next one is to, to ask exactly that question that both Richard and Shona have raised, why is conspiracy theories so much an issue today in particular. Then I will talk a little bit about social media, but mainly point to some underlying structures there that tend to shape the nature of subjectivity today, and um, uh, thereby also um, point to some of the problems for knowledge that um, Shona was talking about. Anyway, then I will broaden out again to, to some larger issues to do with social transformation and end on a reflection on um, the state of our universities which are meant to sit at the pinnacle of uh, rationality or at least reasoning and uh, good sense and uh, finish also on science um, uh, which is so often set against conspiracy theory as it's obverse. Uh, So question, my first question. Um, The flyer says that reason is a tool and asks why it can't be applied reasonably to get at the truth of certain claims or stories, in this case, conspiracy theories. But is reason a tool? Maybe it can be, but it is never just a tool. Reason and reasoning always have a larger social context and they're always part of a cultural framework. The social question that arises here is, does it matter who is speaking and where they sit within a society of differentiated interests and experiences? Will this positioning affect their reasoning? The cultural question is related and it is where does the valuation of reason, even perhaps um, the sort of logic that we are culturally used to, Sit vis a vis other possible approaches to experience and modes of thinking. For example, reason typically sits in binary relationship to emotion and to the irrational, both commonly used in descriptions of cons- conspiracy thinking. Whatever emotion and the irrational are said to be, they are preemptively written off as on the other side of what is acceptable. This is just a warning, I guess, that the expectation of reasonableness and a process of, let's say, logical reasoning has a context and evaluation that may conceal other investments or beliefs that we might have those people using what we claim to be good logic, reason. Question two, um, don't conspiracy theories, so-called, also involve reasoning? And in turn, aren't they also to be seen in context? That is, as having a larger meaning in terms of the social and cultural influences operating in a particular situation. Tim's talk will indicate and illustrate there is often quite complex reasoning in some conspiracy theories. And even if one might say that there are leaps in reasoning in terms of logical thinking or a lack of empirical proof, there are very likely larger meanings and interests involved that provide bases and insights into the reasoning that is used. On this point, I'm with Richard entirely that there are things to talk about across the divides. Um, Anyway, by interests, I'm here, I'm not talking about, say, um, cigarette companies' interests or fossil fuel industry interests in the conscious propagation of untruths about their products and the empirically clear roles they have played in actually constructing and disseminating conspiracy theories. Rather by interests, here I'm interested in what ordinary people feel and think are in their best interests, and therefore why they might have a receptivity to conspiracy theories wherever they might come from. So, Coal miners in the US who have lost ways of life and identity, you know, the moorings of their identity, are predisposed for reasons of those losses, I believe, uh, and there's some pretty good writing on this too, to latch onto Trump and prone to following him down various rabbit holes where hope and anger emotion can't be easily separated from the situated logic that is employed including their typical climate change denial. In the so-called anti-vax case, which really is a catch-all phrase, I think for several different positions, the critical history of big pharma and the lived injuries of biomedical medicine might be drawn on, might even become the basic proposition from which further reasoning about vaccination takes off. Uh, of course um, whether that's so that's another example of a kind of it's it may be a situated knowledge but it might be obviously taking off from certain critical frames um, some critical theory frames even whether or not uh, it uh, makes all the logical connections one might want it to is another question um, anyway um, the, the way med- medicine is uh, the history of biomedical, modern biomedical medicine here is um, taken, of course, may be only one way to see medical science. It may not be the best basis from which to start to reason about vaccination. Nevertheless, despite those two caveats, there is a logic involved and there's plenty of empirical evidence. It's just that that evidence may or not directly be related to the efficacy and safety of COVID vaccines. One might similarly point out in, this, uh, in the anti-vax case, which bleeds into a critique of the state and uh, the biomedical control of people, one might similarly point out that just because big financial interests are involved or the state is perhaps living up to its authoritarian potential, it doesn't mean that the specificities of a pandemic might necessitate socially and individually that we get the jab. So I'm just emphasising context and the foundations of propositions from which um, certain logics follow, um, and certainly trying to keep open um, how we might be able to um, speak over the divisions um, because there are quite a number of possibilities there. Um, My next question um, is meant to and will point to uh, a larger context again. So those two examples of climate change denial and associated conspiracy theories and anti-vaccination sentiment and reasoning point to a still larger context today where we're not just talking about this conspiracy theory or that one, but a context in which conspiracy theory is apparently everywhere. And this leads us back to ask, What is it then that has made the the broader situation thus? Why are conspiracy theories so active at present? This is a historical and specific sort of question. Um, Just uh, three possible and related answers pop up immediately. One is existential loss, a mysterious or unthinkable emergence or event. The intuition, and the third one is the intuition of inchoate forces that are beneath the level of awareness and for which there is no or not yet any accepted accounting for them. So I'm asking again the question, what makes for a receptivity to certain conspiracy theories today? What is it that upsets people's security? And um, inherited sense of self, place, identity. What are the so? Might there be what? What are the forces that might upset that, or what? Are, what is the experience of that upset? In order for us to ask the next question, what? What they might actually be. Okay, so uh, typically social media is lighted on as the key culprit behind this proliferation of conspiracy thinking. And indeed it is one of the big uh, reasons, but I'm gonna call it a structural reason for the rapid dissemination of these theories, uh, conspiracy theories. And this is often in connection with those larger corporate or political interests using social media knowingly to their benefit or the corporate profits to be made out of making it so easy to engage in the kind of um, pretty thoughtless um, attacks that that we know are typical on social media. Um, um, But I think that there are issues here to do, again, with the nature of subjectivity in the contemporary world, and the effects of these technologies that really reveal change that we typically don't take into your works in relation to the person or the individual subject in particular ways. Some of this we know it's it's sort of obvious people are linked into their communities of like and they are divorced from more universal information sources and influences. This is the echo chamber problem or one part of it. Um, But importantly this network of association and information Works structurally to break up uh, once more solid and more general constituencies or populations, readerships, or whatever. Um, it's uh, something about the nature of the network and the experience of a certain kind of autonomy in that network um, that helps to break up the security and authority, I think, of previous kinds of um, relationships and um, forms of information. Um, In the academy of the 1980s and 90s, in the humanities, postmodernist critiques of the established institutions led a lot of leading lights to celebrate what they called then, sounding very positive, the micro worlds that computer and internet technologies would facilitate. This was a celebration of the structure. It was, a, it was a, a, you know, a pretty accurate observation, but it was a celebration of a break from overbearing structures of power uh, and convention. And again, there were plenty of good reasons for that. Um, but we do have, as the flyer mentions, the problem of endless relativism, and I'm wanting to say that that has something to do with the very structure of the network that supports um, social media and other forms of um, electronic and digital communication. Um, uh, So yes, the world insofar as it's broken up by the effects of the computer network in its strange intimacy with the individual subject as a node in the system, celebrates and leads to exactly that problem of um, this, of either what you might wanna put in terms of relativism or um, the breakup of the old, more unified field of understanding um, and knowledge. So the technology works by a structural arrangement that tends to break up shared worlds, which once were more face-to-face and more existentially secure. And experientially, individuals new sense of autonomy facilitated by the network and social media tends to promote a view of a flattened, a a, a kind of flattened um, world really, where uh, the varieties of thought and subject positions are seen uh, on the same plane uh, and uh, are of um, equivalence or equal equal value. The old hierarchy of knowledge has has gone, authority has gone, Um, we're left with this agonistic um, uh, power structure of people within the network pushing their um, particular points of view. So um, all the same, um, or on top of this is really what I mean to say, the whole situation today can be said to be massively overdetermined. As the new network top technologies emerged, uh, so globalization and new forms of capitalism began the breakup of the life worlds of communities and work practices and all kinds of aspects of what had been taken as the given world. On the one hand, the old institutions of work, democracy, medicine, media, education, the universities themselves were under threat or pressure causing social ruptures between classes and parts, different parts of the world, just as examples. On the other hand, the new technologies were establishing new forms of relationship and new forms of experience of the self, um, as we see in social media, but other, other forms of internet connection. Um, so they were establishing new forms of relationships, experiences of the self, as well as power structures, while also being touted as forms of liberation. So I suppose that's my illustration of those three things that I think are in play and must be taken into account. We can see lots of situations in which people quite rightly are experiencing some kind of existential threat. It's highly likely that there are forces out there that we don't understand and that they're inchoate. We can sense them, but we may not have explanations for them. And then terrible things happen, like a pandemic, the unthinkable occurrence um, I think those, those things were all in play. Um, so I'm nearly, I don't know what the time is, I'm nearly finished. Um, I remember a little book, again from the 80s and 90s, called No Respect. It was a book written in the flurry of postmodernist texts at that time. The title suggests a lot of what has come, uh, what has, um, come to be the breakdown not only in the old institutional practices, but also a breakdown of the authority and legitimacy those institutions once carried. Arguably, conspiracy theory has happened along at the culmination point of a long moment in history of a very general destruction of not only taken for granted institutional structures, democratic institutions, work, the family, the welfare state, the fourth estate, um, but the destruction of the planet and the worldviews that once held in place our sense of who humans are and what our relationship to nature is. That disrespect, which used to be so uh, celebrated for established authority structures and sources, which was actively propagated was of course in many cases quite apt but i think there was considerable slippage between critiquing authority as oppressive power and authority as legitimacy historically and socially achieved i think that also goes to something that richard said early uh, earlier that there that legitimacy which we don't seem to have now we don't have shared legitimacy in relation to these range of things around which there are conspiracy theories. We don't, but we can, that they've always been the authority and legitimacy of anything in history and human culture has has been an historical and social achievement. So um, now I was just going to finish briefly with a little reflection on the universities and on science, as I mentioned and then I'll hand over to Tim. So our complex and contradictory universities and the the forms of learning, well, of our once complex and contradictory universities, I'm putting value on those two things, Um, meaning that they were vital places um, with problems, of course, but vital places, especially in the humanities with many contradicting, um points of view that was the point of them if one were to work towards a collective social frame that was going to be through the um parrying of different points of view in um theoretical form or um, whatever it might be analysis um and within this at least for a period critical theory especially played and especially um Um, important role. Um, So um, I don't mean to romanticise this, but there has been a a huge shift, as we all know, in terms of what universities are and how they operate. I just um, have been reading an article in the next issue of Arena Quarterly, actually, Uh, on this question, um, and um, that author is putting it in terms of a shift from education and the formation of young selves um, to um, um, corporatization, obviously, and also the export industry um, of um, international education. Anyway, they're just some examples. Um, So our complex and contradictory universities and the forms of learning and reasoning that university life and education once implied are a key location for these or those processes of disintegration that I was just talking about in terms of um, where we've come to. Um, and where we where we've come to, which I think is marked by the fact of us. Uh, having such terrible trouble sorting out truth and, um, and um, having a, a ground on which to argue against something that we could uh, agree was a conspiracy theory. So sitting once at the pinnacle of the hierarchy of reason, universities are now engines of scientific and technological change, practically in the service of capitalism. The humanities are completely under attack where we might still have hoped for a battle of interpretive frameworks, and especially those around which new expressions and structures of legitimacy might form. Um, and in this context, the hope that science might be the ultimate opposition as reason to conspiracy thinking, as the uh, and conspiracy thinking as the irrational, must surely be brought into question obviously uh, science is held up um, both in climate change issues and in uh, relation to the pandemic and conspiracies um, in both cases as the um as the the antidote Uh, which I think is is problematic. Um, Science might bring a certain logical form of thought to bear. It might expose empirically verifiable facts uh, in quotation marks. And in some circumstances, we might judge those factors true enough and useful enough. Um, And so I'm putting conditions on where we might find truth and usefulness. But science, as techno-science today, is also contributing to a radical destabilizing of a social form um, we once lived by. And just why we should willy-nilly accept its blandishments or reputation is a legitimate critical question that we must ask. Rather than science being the pure authority and carrier of truths that it once was, more, more or less, We have to accept that there is and has to be a politics of and around science. The binary shouldn't be science versus conspiracy. Science is reason, conspiracy is irrational, as it has been in, as I was saying, both the climate change and vaccination debates. For the various reasons I've given so far, we should expect in today's circumstances deep suspicion and concern from many quarters about a range of institutions and forms of authority for good or for ill, and should expect that these will in today's conditions sometimes take the form of conspiracy theories. Um, I think that, uh, again, referring back to those three factors, uh, I think that we have to agree that there are forces that are operating that we can't explain fully. We know they're there, but we don't fully know what shape they have in the sense that we can't be fully sure of how they are reshaping our society. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is uh, a, a social theory, which is looking to find the conditions by which social relationships emerge and how new social relationships um, become concretized and fall into place, and then work through their particular uh, forms of um, legitimacy and authority and so forth. Um, Anyway, um, I'm going to end there. (laughs) Uh, I suppose the object of all of this has been to say that even if we do find lots of elements of conspiracy theories pretty wacky, even if they don't uh, stand up to certain kinds of um, uh, uh, forensic analysis, um, what we should be engaging with is where they come from and why, what the nature of them is, what the structure of them is, and that might get us over the hurdle of actually talking to people. Thanks.
3: uh hello thanks very much allison uh for that talk and yeah richard and everyone helping out um putting this event on uh, my name is tim i'll be the next speaker the talk that i'm going to give this evening uh came out of an article that i published last year in that which was the um, fourth issue of arena quarterly uh richard uh read it and thought that it was yeah, worth worth giving uh being the basis of a talk so basically i'm going to use that article as my little um 15 minute allotment tonight and i think it should build on allisons pretty well in that it comes from a similar position of um, critical interpretation and i want to look at some of the the unknown forces and how and to complexify conspiracy theories instead of simplifying them. What I had wanted to show you (laughs) was a black and white photograph of a man uh, that was taken on the 7th of October uh, at Mount Eliza, which is not not far away from where I am now, just um, a bit south of Melbourne. And the man uh, went to one of the Telstra 5G poles and set it on fire. Uh, It caused $1 million worth of damage and he was um, arrested there afterwards and found to be one of the anti-lockdown protesters and is accused of, um, or he's accused, these allegations at the moment, court will figure it out in January, but um, I thought it was an interesting one because that's exactly what the article um, that I was writing about last year, his name was Antennas of Flame, and it was looking at burning 5G towers as part of the 5G conspiracy, and it was a, pretty big deal all across last year, and it still remains one. There's been a lot of examples of this all around the world in various ways. Uh, And of course, much of the mainstream liberal commentary on the 5G conspiracy, a lot of it consists of basically snide dismissals that blame blame credulous individuals for their inaccurate beliefs. And of course, there are a lot of inaccurate things about the various 5G uh, conspiracies, absolutely, but simply fact-checking them isn't really enough to say something like 5G is a non-ionizing rad- radiation, therefore, it can't hurt you. That doesn't, that's not not enough. Uh, likewise, another trope that a lot of mainstream liberal commentary falls into is what a uh, friend of mine described nicely as a kind of Will Anderson smug, which is totally unhelpful uh, if you actually want to, instead of just mock a person, if you actually want to engage with them, you can't come across with this kind of, uh, s- that kind of smugness, because it's just going to burn burn bridges. And I think that the situation we find ourselves in uh, demands a little bit more. In fact, given how widespread a lot of conspiracies are, uh, mis- myth-busting, fact-checking is they- inadequate, ill suited to understand the nature of the problem, let alone formulating a political response to it. So across this talk, I'm going to um, yeah, look at conspiracy theories, uh, in a kind of more problematizing light in that they can have various shades of uh, they can be various shades of false uh, but knowledge has a variety of social functions and it's not reducible to a purely rational rationalistic logic. Uh, perhaps it's more fruitful to examine the conspiracies that drive things like that would get someone to uh, light a 5G tower on fire. Uh, yeah. The conspiracies that would drive someone to do that, it's better to speculate them or what, speculate about what they mean as a reflection of our present historical conjuncture. That doesn't mean agreeing with all of the claims of conspiracists at all, but it does need to suggest uh, that we need to interpret them uh, in a deeper way to look at the structural crises that are currently afflicting our world. I thought that I would read a, um, the first paragraph of my article, because when I was looking at it again, I don't know if I could put it. Uh, as well as I wrote it then. It says, uh, okay, just for for a little visual imaginary, the image that I had wanted to show you here was just of a 5G tower um, stuck on top of a building in a city. It could be Mullumbimby, it could be Melbourne, it could be pretty much any urban city, uh, rich city in the world. Colonies of increasingly sophisticated antennas have been spreading across host societies, reorganizing the way that people live their lives through encoded electromagnetic radiation. Positioned atop cellular towers, parasitically grafted onto older structures or raised on high natural formations, these antennas occupy a contradictory place in their high-tech societies. They invisibly enmesh. Considering their prominent positions in and around cities, they are like magico-religious symbols. The newest ones are strikingly blank, long white boxes that protect and conceal apparatuses that transmit directional microwaves with sector-shaped radiation patterns. Plugged into fibre-optic cables and thus the global infrastructure of the internet, these logistical nodes are tended to by a priesthood of technoscientists governed by regimes of protocol operating through specific specific privatized wavelengths all up they enable cybermetic communion with and between networked computing machines the magic of information communication technologies these antennas are hidden in plain sight just another very poorly understood part of the background of 21st century life so long as they allow for communion with and through the cybernetic gods they remain part of an ambient backdrop these highly visible and uh, simultaneously invisible devices are products of abstract intellectual labor and thus highly unintelligible to most people. So if we'd actually think through um, the materiality of what 5G infrastructure is, what it means, um, which is part of the tradition of which I'm speaking from, I think it's an important thing to do. We have to look critically at the network computing machines that, that form it up. Uh, For 5G, one of the things that it does is it transmits far more, uh, far larger amounts of data can flow to a phone and all around the world. And as such, it emits uh, much more intense electromagnetic frequencies and uh, much higher data flows and a lot more processing power is needed all along the way. And all of this requires huge amounts of electricity. And most of this just isn't, your. phone's battery going down faster, although it'll be that too. um, It means that far more electricity will have to be generated and transmitted to actually have all of this data, huge amounts of data um, swarming around. Already we are on track to have the communication technology sector consuming half of all electricity generated on earth by 2030. So half of all electricity is just for computing machines by 2030 and it's probably we're going to go even higher than that given um, how rapid uh, a lot of these changes are. One fact captures this quite nicely, I think. Uh, Streaming one hour of high-definition video consumes the same amount of energy as running a refrigerator for two weeks, which is a pretty jarring fact if you consider the vast amount of on-demand visual data being streamed all around the world at the moment, and then try to think through its ecological implications. They're, they're massive um, because of course, a lot of it goes through the cloud or such vacuous metaphors. Indeed, right now, of course, we're speaking via Zoom. That means that for my image or audio to be sent to you, it has to be encoded, uh, transmitted through a series of wireless, and cap- wireless cables and fiber optic cables probably to a um, data center, very possibly on the other side of the planet, where Zoom as a company will be um, grooming over this data with voice recognition uh, that can provide closed caption uh, titles that blow it, facial recognition, uh, sentiment analysis, all sorts of things are being mined from what I'm saying right now and compiled by a very powerful corporate entity for purposes largely unknown. Uh, Likewise, when it gets uploaded to YouTube, the same thing will happen there. Uh, All for our uh, live or real time or on-demand watching slash listening pleasure. Now this whole infrastructure, of course, is very short-lived. It's all been designed according to the principles of uh, planned obsolescence. and that leads to a booming and pretty hideous e-waste industry which is highly colonial. Uh, The wastefulness of that system is as grotesque as it is narrowly profitable. Uh, The toxins that leach out of decomposing computers uh, and go into food chains accumulate in the bodies of the poorest of the poor, they manifest in cancers and birth defects and all sorts of quite ghastly things. Anyway to sum up that line of argument Uh, Suffice to say, 5G will undoubtedly mean uh, far more data will be moved all around the world. Uh, Hence, more energy will be burned, far more pollutants will be released, far more technologies fabricated in toxic and exploitative conditions, far more rare earth mining undertaken, uh, and much more e-waste exported to the poorest corners of the world. There's a grim irony here in that we live in a moment when there has never been a more compelling argument to consume less, to lead less energy intensive lives. And yet here we are again, at the beginning of vastly expanded energy usage. Uh, So amid collapsing ecosystems and broiling social decay and fragmented consciousness and all of the other things that uh, plague our moment, a historic moment, the captains of industry maintain that they must we must press on in the long march towards some kind of glorious future. And this is framed as an inevitable development and it's championed not only by um, techno-utopians which can be all different sh- uh, political shades from free market free marketeers through uh, techno-fascists or liberal center lefts or the fully automated luxury communists or academic celebrants of post-humanism or all sorts. Uh, Basically, it's one of the most dominant assumptions of our time and it's massively problematic. The idea that technological expansion and economic growth must uh, have continued, will continue is inevitable. That is the goal of society. This is a hugely fraught area. Uh, despite their various political differences and that the grouping that I just put above, they all envision lifestyles of increasing technological mastery, infinite on-demand consumption, and disembodied integration. They all are prom- promoted through mantras of efficiency or convenience or connectivity and other such buzzwords. Uh, each they're increasingly separated from any kind of social or ecological grounding. And of course, a lot of that is bound up with the concept of of reason, which of course is not an ethical good, but something something more complex. yet yeah, well, some of the most powerful actors on the planet push for these kinds of futures. Not everyone is thrilled, of course. Uh, the, the image that I had wanted to start this with uh, was of a burning 5G tower. And it's quite a striking image, uh, a 5G 5G tower and flames, yeah, a very striking image. You can imagine it like boiling, roiling plastic and shooting sparks and dripping all sorts of nasty things, uh, burning away at the very infrastructural basis of cybernetic capitalism. And that image is more striking again when it's not just an accident that has the antenna uh, catch fire, but a politically motivated arson of someone acting on a conspiracy theory. And as I mentioned at the beginning, there's been hundreds of towers burnt around the world. And of course, the plot here thickens again when it turns out that the attackers are motivated by a conviction that these communication towers are somehow bound up with the coronavirus pandemic. And here, it's tricky when you talk about conspiracy theories, because there's so many different different varieties of this. Like it can go from, I don't know, I could come up with a quick list of things like the The Knights Templar, a lot of it goes back to that. Uh, 9-11 Truthers, Chemtrails, uh, Creationism, Fluoride Mind Control, White Genocide, Elvis Lives, Flat Earthers. There's so many different, um, different ones and there's a huge variety within it. There's mixes of benign to vile uh, often elements of the occult or the paranoid, the plausible, the actual, are stitched together, sometimes with heroic levels of cognitive dissonance, yet sometimes, and importantly, containing kernels of truth. Uh, Alison mentioned sometimes that uh, some conspiracies draw on this kind of an un-understood, un-yet-processed or rationalised feeling and in intuition that things are a bit off. And there's also a lot of difference between the relative power of the people championing various conspiracies. Say, the conspiracy theory that climate change is a hoax that has been accepted by many of the world's most powerful states and corporations. I can think of a certain prime minister with, a, with their pet lump of coal um, and the planet burning consequences that's been from that. But basically, uh, conspiracy theory, for it to, to, to work, to have legs, to function, it requires a, degree of plausibility. And that may well reflect increasingly large void that separates the everyday experience of how we live our lives with what counts as real or true from our technologically, scientifically reorganized world. A lot of people are intuitively disturbed by the developments and can find explanatory power in conspiracy theories as a way to make sense of our chaotic world. Um, To zoom in on the probably dominant 5G conspiracy theory. Uh, It's because there's all so many different varieties of it. But the the dominant one, it basically claims that the COVID pandemic is part of a global elite strategy personified in the person of Bill Gates uh, to roll out compulsory vaccinations that contain tracking microchips that can be activated via 5G technology. That's it in a sentence. And that formulation uh, is quite interesting in that it draws on actual uh, plausible distortions and falsity, and they're all woven together in a um, quite a potent combination. And it's found many, many adherents and sympathisers. And I think it's worth uh, taking it seriously in order to think through its constitutive elements: uh, medical science, inequality, surveillance, cybernetic technology, and to think through its social context on a number of levels. Uh, inequality is obviously a massive, massive one. Um, I think you can make a very strong empirical argument that since the beginning of the COVID-19 um, pandemic, we've witnessed, we have experienced the single largest transfer in wealth in human history with it being accumulated at the top in mind blowing, absolutely grotesque concentrations. Uh, Bill Gates uh, stands in for this in the COVID, uh, in the 5G conspiracies as a personification of this. Gates hasn't, uh, he stood down from, as the CEO for Microsoft uh, decade, like back in the early 2000s. And, but since the global financial crisis, I think his wealth has doubled or almost tripled, even though he hasn't actually been working per se. Uh, and uh, yeah, this, this sense of uh, massive inequality is really, really important to weave in. And a lot of conspiracy theories touch on it in one way or another. And it's uh, fundamental, so a lot of people who are disturbed by such things can be pointing, uh, can actually be describing uh, inequality in various ways, but without necessarily putting it explicitly. Another part would be the techno-medical part of it. For instance, if we look into the injecting microchips claims, that's part of the um, the 5G conspiracy. By coincidence, at pretty much the same time that uh, COVID Uh, coronaviruses spreading in Wuhan in December of 2019 a team of technoscientists at MIT published their findings from a research via a research that was made possible via a grant from the Bill and Miranda Gates Foundation. Uh, They were researching a thing that they called quantum dots which was a kind of injectable nanocrystal that remains invisible under the skin but infrared light will make it detectable by a specially equipped smartphone and in this experiment they succeeded in getting crystals to glow in the bodies of rats and being able to read it with with a smartphone and then they envisioned that it would be possible to use these invisible tattoo kind of things uh, like techno tattoos basically uh, as a kind of biomedical metric for keeping people's vaccination records in the global south Uh, this actual piece of research uh, became a key element in the 5G COVID conspiracy. The scientists themselves were completely perplexed, saying, But there's no microchips at all. Um, our quantum dots, they don't connect to 5G. Uh, you know, we tried to me- bring up this technology to help poor people receive better health treatments. Uh, and Gates himself just dismisses all of the conspiracies as just being so stupid. And most mainstream commentary, or pretty much all mainstream commentary, follows suit notwithstanding the distinction between a 5g enabled tracking microchip Im- implant and injectable quantum dots in- that emit a smart smartphone readable infrared light because these are very different things um, the fact that the conspiracy uh on this level is empirically wrong is false that's not how it is but It does correctly characterize some of the key aspects of the present conjuncture. We have a billionaire representative of cybernetic capitalism funding privatized research to develop technoscientific tools that can better surveil the bodies of the poor. That is very accurate in ways that liberal commentators uh, simply can't understand. One unreflective limitation of the 5G conspiracy theory though, is it's uncomfortable fact that one doesn't need to invent a Uh, fictional injectable microchip to have a full-blown surveillance society. Indeed, we already have one. The smart technologies that increasingly enmesh our lives have done that without needing to pierce the skin. Network computing machines and the whole cybernetic apparatus of real-time GPS location awareness, voice recognition, sentiment analysis algorithms, targeted advertising, so on and so forth, predictive policing, you name it. Um, They have a powerful material foundation Uh, We have provided a powerful material foundation for increasingly totalizing surveillance. And those developments, they're part of a long history of the powerful using scientific forces to view the world from above in order to project control on it with the abstracting power, uh, qualitatively altering humanity's relationship both with itself and with the natural world around it. What I find curious about the 5G conspiracy in particular is that the people drawn to it uh, seem to, at least on a level, reject the logics of control, uh, seemingly being alienated by it. Um, And yet, uh, without without the automated surveillance and manipulation of the tech titans, many people um, wouldn't wouldn't have heard of the 5G conspiracy thrives on... um, in the very conditions that it's trying to critique like how many people have been linked to an anti-5g thinking wow on a 5g technology like there's all sorts of um loops around here Uh, so to us like if you look at then the echo chambers uh customized truth and whatnot like say this um this event like who's invited where did it share like you know where will the podcast be shared what what feeds will it pop up on? These are very powerful um, structures. Anyway, um, I think I'm probably need to be finishing up pretty soon. So, um, I guess to to wrap the uh, hang. On, that's right. I was going to read the last paragraph from my article because I thought it again put it. Pretty nicely, well as nice as I'm capable of putting it. Uh, if radical political movements put 5G conspiracists simply into Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorables, this is not only a refusal to grapple with the concerns of many of the excluded from high-tech society; it is also seeds massive grounds to the political right. The attraction of conspiracies is likely to grow as more jobs are lost to high technology. More of everyday life is colonised by surveilling entertainment media. Critical education and journalism continue to be suffocated and inequality increases. These pressures will likely increase the gap between those comfortable with abstracted life and those disturbed by its extreme ungrounding. Sneering at people's inaccurate beliefs comes from a misplaced sense of superiority. Superiority, social and intellectual, focusing erroneously on the content of conspiracy claims while ignoring the social form that have set them on their course. The political impasse today demands engaging with those drawn to subversive conspiracies to push them further in their critique and understanding, to organize resistance. This should be done through asking fundamental social questions such as how do capitalism and the techno sciences shape one another? How do they? older forms of life. How do they undo older forms of life and consciousness? How do we move towards a less wasteful and fairer set of relations than the present planet burning catastrophe? The answer to these will not be found in conspiracies, but rather it will be worked out through multi-dimensional critique and struggles and ways to radically remake society in more cooperative ways. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Tim. Um, I'd like to invite Alison back in to join us as we get into the Q and A section. So, Alison, if you want to pop your camera back on and unmute. Yep. Hi. <laughs> so. Thank you so much, both of you, for what you've offered with us tonight. Uh, Before we get into questions, um, I'll just do a quick shout out to those of us who are tuning in to watch. Um, If you have a question for Timothy or Alison or both of them, please pop it in the Q&A now and we will hopefully get to your question. So we have a question, um, we do have a question here from someone who's viewing, but If you will indulge me, I do have a couple of questions of my own. So maybe we can start with a couple of those if I can be so bold. So there was so much to so much that we could talk about. I feel like we could have a whole nother, we could have a whole nother discussion just going through all of the things that you touched on. It was so rich and you brought up so many amazing things. Um, But I just wanted to start with something that Alison touched on and when she was talking about the universities and the ways in which that the humanities and the liberal arts have been defunded and devalued and the rise of STEM as important and science, science, technology, medicine, et cetera, as important as it is, the idea that there used to be something of a balance between the two and the idea of a liberal education used to be something that was broadly valued and having people have a broad understanding and access to the historical resources of the world to be able to inform how they how they assimilate information it feels like that's being devalued and while we've had this extremely fragmented internet life come up in its place where it feels like in a similar sort of way that charity is coming in to counterbalance a lot of the damage that's being done by the effects of global, um, the effects of climate change and all this sort of stuff. It feels like internet communities are trying to plug up all of the holes that's been left by the, the damage that's been done to our educational system. And I was just wondering how how you feel that we could go about trying to create a more cohesive sort of educational system, assuming that the universities are not going to reduce their... Reduce their um, their decision to move in this more capitalistic STEM-directed manner.
2: Well, um, Tim might have some things to say here too, but I think the STEM example is a great one. Um, And part of why it's a good one is that people in the arts have been reduced, or the humanities, but the humanities are basically forgotten, but the arts can still fulfil a function. They can they can illustrate science. They can make science cool. They can um, as sorry, I, I, it actually disturbs me greatly that within they've they tried to that they have tried to expand STEM to STEAM to add the arts in there, and so from the point of view of STEAM, the arts becomes a sort of um, utilitarian um, sort of service to those other more important um, disciplines that there is a hierarchy there for sure, but it's not a hierarchy of reason. It's a a hierarchy of forms, isn't it? It's a hierarchy of techno, um, techno scientific um, potentialities versus the interpretive dropping into a mere role to service those other um, and now key functions in the techno technoscientific um, um, uh, economy. Um, I've forgotten what I was going to say just then, but um, um, in terms of an educational, uh, yeah, look, I mean, I just think that the humanities in Australia seem to be more under attack than in many other places um and in fact what your little uh reference there to the to charities at, at melbourne university the only reason it's really got a history department still is because of a massive private <laughs> um funding of of something you know of, of a very large number of staff and pro- pro- professorial people and so forth so that there, there has been that kind of privatisation going on as well. I don't know, I don't think the universities anytime soon are going to return to what you were talking about and what I was a bit talking about, the idea, the modern university where philosophy actually was the queen of the university that sat above everything, both the, um, uh, that's what it was called at the time, the queen of the university where it sat above both the vocational courses and even science, because philosophy uh, was um, given the role of trying to interpret or to understand or to reason about everything. So I don't think we're going to return there soon. And I actually think that places like Arena and places like you've been creating up north from us are alternative universities. I mean, obviously, they're not in so many ways, but uh they're critically important to keeping critical theory or critical thinking. Um there are all sorts of different ways of um critical thinking but yeah don't know what else to say about on that one.
0: Thank you so much Alison Tim did you have anything you wanted to add?
3: Uh, yes the the university today is a pretty pretty grim subject no matter which way you cut it and the little introduction you gave me, um, I said that I was uh, precariously employed across several universities. Uh, at the moment, just one. There were more, but those have disappeared and that current one will disappear too in, I think, about a month. Uh, and so, I mean, I'm just bringing that up because there's I know there's a whole lot of people in a similar con- position to me because of the massive precaritization of the university, which is a, a disaster, not just in universities, but uh, there are particularly... Uh, cutting example of those logics in play and of course that needs to be opposed and it needs to be organized against and there are you know um, quite a bit of organizing and opposition to it in various ways not that successful as yet because the trend continues but um yeah a lot of what I understand in the active resistance in the university sector a lot of it seems to be these kind of rearguard actions of trying to hold on to jobs not um, have them not Yeah, get undermined, undermined conditions, not outright fired um, and so on and so forth, which of course must be done. I'm not for a moment suggesting that we don't need to absolutely defend working rights and um, proper job opportunities. But the sort of the deeper questions that, you know, um, Alison was touching on and that you were touching on as well, these aren't really being discussed very much at all, and yet we find our ourselves if we just take a step back from the universities in particular to the broader situation around it it's pretty catastrophic in a lot of ways I can't I don't think yeah it's not going to (laughs) I'm repeating myself I'm agreeing with Alison I don't imagine anytime soon this is going to get much better it would require a radically different organization of society which is possible um but I'm not holding my breath despite fighting a number of rearguard actions uh, with what breath I can have. (laughs) Something like that.
0: Thank you so much. And um, I mean, I have so many questions. I've got about four pages of questions written down and we're not going to get to them all because I do actually have to allow the people in the audience to be able to have their questions answered too. Uh, But just skipping on to uh, what you were discussing, Tim, I was particularly struck by your mention in talking about the burning of the 5G tower as politically motivated arson. And all of a sudden, when you said that, I could see it so clearly in my brain, and this might sound silly, but I was immediately reminded of sort of the final images from the film and the novel Fight Club um, by Chuck Palianuk. And that was a film that I enjoyed very much in my earlier years when it came out and I think a lot of people obviously found it quite incendiary at the time and rallied around the idea of being against you know against the government against the against the status quo and trying to burn it all down and I feel like when that film came out and when it was discussing, you know, concepts around masculinity and, you know, radicalization, all of that sort of stuff, I felt like the world was in, I feel like the world was in quite a different place than what it's in now. And who was being radicalised, who we were seeing being radicalised and bringing those radicalised effects into the world were quite a different group of people than what we're seeing coming out of, coming out of the, you know, the West now where the rise of, white nationalism is growing, authoritarian extremism is growing around the world. And I was also reminded, I'm sorry, this isn't a question, I'm just speechifying at the moment, but there's a YouTuber, a um, political and philosophical YouTuber, ContraPoints, Natalie Wynn, that I really, really enjoy. And in one of her videos called The Darkness, she references um, Richard Pryor joking about Um, being on fire because he was so high on coke and he set himself on fire and talking about that on stage and that was his darkness to discuss. And so when we think about, you know, people wanting to sit back and watch it all burn, Burn. only the people who aren't on fire have the luxury to do that. So how do we deal, how do we soothe these identitarian crises that have of these people who have been radicalised, especially when that radicalization is so supported by technological and capitalist gains.
3: Uh, that's a that's a good question. Um, and I don't have a, a clear cut answer to it. Yeah, the, the reference to fight clubs an interesting one. And I do agree um, that we're in a very different place, place now, now from now when that was made. made. I remember watching what? it when I was in mid high school, something like that. Uh, and was Um, Blown away by it at the time. I I thought it was fantastic. Like, you were not your um, khakis, you were not your abs. No way, they don't say that. Um, You were definitely your abs, according to Brad Pitt, in it. But anyway, it had a critique of uh, capitalism in it. It it also um, flirted with it in a lot of ways. It had some kind of strange, like, very militant something. Like, you couldn't really make a film like that today. It would end up being alt right. Uh, in a way that's quite quite strange and that the actual a lot of the grounding of where we have uh, on how cultures work and um, cultural industries are I don't think that you could create a film quite like that again in today's context not easily anyway but yeah um, I mean you're also right in that uh, things are burning I mean if you look at it uh, on a global ecological sense we can say literally burning like the great fires here were not that long ago and who knows how many seasons until they're back in one way or another. And yes, there's a question of, of a luxury and being able to um, you know, not <clears throat> not take desperate action. And yeah, I think that maybe some of the, the attacks like the five, 5G tower attacks, they are kind of politically motivated arson. Perhaps not that distinct from older um acts of sabotage or even luddite style breaking of tools i mean it's a completely different order because we're talking about high tech techno capitalism as opposed to like 19th century machines and whatnot but there's a similar kind of impulse in it how that could be um could not it could avoid a lot of the problematic aspects of it i suppose uh one way would just be to have more mainstream um mainstream attention actually to the underlying structural problems that we have like that needs to be looked at and grappled with very firmly Uh, like political parties who claim to be off the left whatever they imagine that means whatever anyone imagine that means these days it's a complicated question but for one they should actually be trying to offer something different something other than where we are right now i mean it seems to me that the australian labor party is at the moment, trying to make itself basically, on a federal level, basically identical to uh, the opposition. Oh, sorry, they're the opposition the, the, uh, to the government. They're trying to be the same thing, but slightly watered down. And yet, there seems to me to be a huge appetite to for significant change that's just not being met. And that can then find all of these kind of inarticulate quite dark, nasty reactionary forces will, can and do grab onto that, uh, in part because a lot of the the sort of left was so bound up with questions of what's well, often put under the heading neoliberalism and whatnot, have forfeited the ability to actually think through a different organisation of society and therefore people who have created openings um, and also not looking at the the ungrounding of social relations and the techno scientific power to create really deep and insidious alienation in a lot of things. It's created and fermented a lot of the conditions for this. So I guess we just need to spend more time actually thinking these things through, actually trying to propose um, different different uh, policies, different like practice, different engaged political actions.
0: Thank you so much for that response, Tim. Alison, was there anything that you wanted to add on to that?
2: Um, No, it's okay. That's fine with me.
0: Okay. Well, with no further ado, so Stuart's question was, is why give so much attention to conspiracy theorists? You don't have to dismiss them, simply take less notice and address issues that so affect human rights and life chances.
2: Well... I will answer that one. <laughs> uh, Stuart, hello there. Um, I think the whole point is that really that Tim and I are saying that it means something. It may not mean what they say it means, but it means something. And this is why in the interpretive humanities and the capacity to stand back and look at social transformations and ask big questions about it to interpret it. Is so important. Um, I, I mean, obviously some conspiracy theory is very dark, goes in very dark directions, is incredibly dangerous, but wouldn't you do anything for Nazi Germany or fascism not to arise? Wouldn't you do anything? Wouldn't you speak to people across the divides? Wouldn't you try to make that difference? Isn't that what we should be doing? Um, and part of that is to take people seriously. I, I, you can disagree with their arguments. You can point to a lack of reason if we're going to say that. But on the other hand, you can be sympathetic to why they might be receptive to them. Um, we, In our next issue, we're going to have this really fascinating article about Conspiracy theories affecting vaccination rates in the Northern Territory. And I mean, are you going to say that we shouldn't listen or try to understand why Aboriginal communities have gone in large part or in large, quite large numbers, so it would seem, or at least some have, in the direction of um, vaccine hesitancy, because they believe the conspiracy theories or they're receptive in one way or another to the conspiracy theories that are being fed to them. So, yes, there's power. Certainly evangelical churches, God knows what their connections are are behind some of it, but why pay attention to it in the first place? Um, anyway, that's just, just an example, but I actually think it's vitally important at this point in time if um, it's not to take an incredibly ugly turn.
0: Thank you so much for that response, Alison. Tim, would you like to add anything on to what Alison said?
3: Um, I mean, I agree with Alison and I guess the only thing to add on to it is, uh, I suppose it's not just, a, we have to take these concerns seriously to think them through and then to try to find at the underlying structures and uh, why, why they resonate so much. I think there's, there's that's important to do. Of course, it's not only to do that we also have to do a whole lot of other things, too. And I don't want to like, devote my life to trying to understand conspiracy theories in and of themselves. So I, I don't think that we should only do that. And they are a real hot buzz topic at the moment. I mean, I've noticed over, particularly over the last year, uh, the amount of articles and discussions on it has gone up massively because the conspiracy theories have gone up massively. So I guess they're important to try to understand as one of the forces in the world today important to try to get a better grip of where we are now what what's actually going on and the kind of I suppose what Alison said in the initial part uh, responding to some of the existential or uh, like almost subconscious disturbs like the intuitions that are there some of them are are very grim but others such as many parts of the 5G conspiracy are actually pretty spot on uh, in their critiques of a number of different parts of society even if empirically wrong like the, the intuition is there uh, and it actually can make sense not only of why people are drawn to it, but also if we then follow those critiques and think, okay, what could be done otherwise, how could that be counted other than just saying you're wrong, then, you know, we need to think it through. But, of course, not only that, we also have to do a lot of other things too. There's a lot of work to be done, put it that way.
0: There definitely is. There definitely is, so yeah, thank you so much for that. And Wayne says, while all these conspiracy theories may differ in terms of content, is there any similarity in underlying logical structure that might be identified? I'm thinking in terms of formal and informal fallacies and perhaps even, even touching on Popper's notion of falsifiability. Who wants to take that one first?
2: Um, I'll I'll say something. Uh, I would say that it's almost as if there's metaphorical thinking going on. Um, And, yeah, you know, falsifiability, you could bring that to bear, but I really don't think it's what's called for in, well, you know, it's... It depends what one's aim is, I suppose. If it is to to talk to people across the divide and to understand that something might come out of that socially and for the future and for a better future and to guard against the darkness of the conspiracy theory potential, then you might want to point out that... Uh, something's incorrect, as Tim has with the example of the um, the quantum chi- uh, the quantum dot versus the five G chip. You know that this would be that's a great example. You could clearly point out that they're not the same thing, and they can only do this, and they can't do that. They 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 might be bad, but they're not bad for the reasons that you're talking about. You you might be able to point all of that out. But there's still the question of those: why people are receptive. What is it about their social conditions? What is it about the history of Aboriginal people that would make them prone to believing that this example of state um, benevolence is gonna be different from past experiences of state benevolence. Um, So, I do th- but I do think it's an interesting question not so much the one about falsifiability but the question of what what mode of thought is involved I do think that that's a yeah that's a that's a question worth following up but that might not be that important to the final issue of how do you talk to people I I'm not sure I don't know if that made sense but I do think there is something. Even you, um, sorry, Shona, when you started talking about burning flames, fight cub, you know that is a, a way of connecting scenes and aspects and interesting things, but it's it's not um, the sort of logical um, hierarchical forms of uh, propositional thought that is being referred to by by this some um, questioner. Yeah.
0: Thanks Alison. And uh, Tim, did you want to add anything on?
3: Um, I guess just to add half a point, I suppose this is such a huge diversity of conspiracy theories that it would be very difficult to come at a generalizing structure for it. I mean, if you compare like Elvis lives to, I don't know, a number of the other ones that we've touched on tonight, there's, it would be, I think it would be very difficult uh, in a formal kind of way to, map map that out. But um I guess yeah the question of their form uh is important. One thing that is touched on a decent amount in mainstream commentary is the the form. Possums in the roof. Okay. There's all sorts of great distractions here. <laughs> uh, is the form through which the conspiracy theories move, which of course is um like your Facebooks and other kinds of um the cybernetic side of it and that form if we try to think of it in that kind of formal sense is worth looking into the way that the actual mediums themselves uh come in with their you know uh like auto propaganda devices basically that's a key part of it and that is talked about uh a bit which is good uh, and important so I guess yeah there's just uh, a lot of different levels to try to think through the form and what what it could mean as well as a huge diversity within the conspiracy theories themselves.
0: Thanks so much for that, Tim. Okay, all right. So now our next question, and my, my deepest apologies if I mispronounce your name, but I believe it is Felim. And the question is, aren't the constituent elements of a conspiracy theory simply rumors on one hand and a cabal on the other? Moreover, cabals can propagate crazy rumours to confuse and obfuscate. Well, no. <laughs> um, I think they're both, you know, absolutely
2: crucial elements in, in the conspiracy theories that we've been talking about. Um, but um, I don't think all... I, I doubt that there's a cabal involved in some of the theory, in some conspiracy theories. Yes, yes um climate change denialism and conspiracies there there's a cabal and that's that's you know that's where there's a real conspiracy happening i mean there are so many ironies in all of this but um i don't i can't see why there would be a cabal involved for instance in anti-vaccination um conspiracy theories for instance i don't think that's anyway no um i suppose Again, for me and maybe for Tim, I think we're, we're, we're coming at, at this sort of question as a both a social, theoretical one, how do you understand what happens when you're in the midst of a, of a very large social transformation, in this case, a social transformation being led by science and technology into a world the contours of which we actually just don't know, either disaster or, you know, post-human Possibilities, um, uh, and then the question about why people are receptive or how are they receptive is is almost an anthropological question. But it's one you know for all of us. It's we're not in, I, I you know, I mean, uh, we need to interpret where we stand, not just where other people stand. I think it's a general um, proposition. Yeah. Anyway, I just um, don't think that it's all about rationality or non-rationality, obviously.
0: Thank you for that, Alison. And Tim, did you want to add to add to that?
3: Um, yeah, likewise. Uh, I guess, yeah, the cabal question. I mean, there are definitely a number of um, very dubious forces who jump on a lot of these kind of bandwagons to try to spin them in their own particular ways. That's definitely, definitely something in some powerful interests, seeking to yeah, uh, have conduct all sorts of yeah, manipulation projects. That's definitely a thing, um, undoubtedly. But also there, given, I guess, the, the networked complexity of how these things actually arise and move around and the structures of it, I don't think it could be um, so neatly reducible. Um, yeah, but the... The confuse and obfuscate how much of that is a purposeful directed thing uh that's hard to say i mean it's almost a i guess conspiratorial thing in and of itself right uh like how do you uh, is that falsifiable do you refer back to the previous question not not exactly um obviously i think i think it's obvious anyway that a lot of the present predicament does confuse and obfuscate. I think all of us, if we're being honest, are confused in a number of ways about the world that we found ourselves in. If you're not, Mm. then um, maybe we need to think about it a bit more because it's pretty confusing. Uh, But we also have to strive not to be confused in that we have to, you know, think, reflect, question, be critical, all of the things that seminars like this are trying to try to to do. Um, That's really important because there is a huge amount of confusion and some of it is really dangerous and frightening. Um, Some of it's also very fair and necessary. Uh, Where do we go with it? (laughs) Uh, That's the big question. Uh, Hopefully somewhere with our humanity intact, hopefully somewhere more socially just, Um, but I guess these are questions for, for not only interpretation, but various shades of struggle, various shades of uh, organizing and action and practice, uh, as well as uh, theoretical inquiry and whatnot.
0: Thank you so much for that, Tim. Okay, so we just have one last question and it is from Michael. And his question is, aren't these theories part of a larger politics of resentment following social breakdown? and I believe he's quoting someone called Wendy Brown, or a resort to magical thinking consequent to a condition of anime, and he's quoting Chris Hedges there. Um, Who would like to to jump into that one first?
2: Well, um, the resentment part is the dangerous part, and the resentment part, is indeed about the collapse of, but I I don't think resentment is necessarily the best way to think about it. It, um, Resentment may be a component, anyway, resentment, yes, is a dangerous emotion. that you don't have what other people seem to have, and why shouldn't you is, is obviously very destabilizing in and of itself. Um, but I don't think that is the same as being destabilized existentially by the ground of your assumed, uh, it might only be historically achieved identity, i.e., you know, the coal miners in the U.S. Um, as an example. Um, that I think we we have to be much more open to understanding that people's lives are and sense of selves are, you know, deeply threatened. It's not just that they want what other people seem to have and they no longer do. Um, It's that people are, you know, shaken up. Their their constituted self is undergoing a shock. Um, I don't think all the conspiracy theory people out there and some of the really horrible seeming really violent, you know, um, versions of this tending in the direction of very nasty right-wing stuff. I'm not talking about them. yeah, I just think we, we have to move past seeing that it's potentially only resentment.
0: Thanks for that, Alison. And uh, Tim, did you want to add anything onto that?
3: Yeah, I guess, well, to look at the second part of it, the condition of uh, an enemy or um, alienation, yep. things like that, the Chris Hedges mm-hmm. line. I think that is a major part of it um, some kind of alienation but then of course how that's understood what that means uh, is a major thing to kind of think through and here we live in an age of uh, rampant alienation I believe even though the actual concept of alienation has largely exited the building and it hasn't really been talked about that much for a couple of generations even though as far as I understand it seems a pretty or at least can be formulated in such a way that it can be a very powerful, critical tool for understanding where we are now. And it's quite, uh, would quite require quite a bit of work to flesh out exactly what I mean by that. And I don't think we're at the point in the evening to sort of get into formulating how you can have a non-essentialist version of uh, alienation and what that could mean Mm -hmm. for critical practice today. But um, I definitely think uh, that explanations like that are important and do... uh, Help make a bit of sense of where we are now. As with analysing broader social questions in terms of inequality and so forth, which is probably one of the more common ones done. But also, what's not done so much in terms of uh, critiquing the techno sciences and their role is uh, um, their role as part of capitalism. That is a, a key key thing that I think is not looked at enough and can structurally produce. Uh, a number of the the problems that we have now, or exacerbate them uh, in pretty pretty serious ways.
0: Thank you so much for that, Tim. So we're coming towards the end of our of our talks, and just to quickly um, cap on Michael's question about the notion of resentment, if Michael or anyone else out there is interested in looking into. The concept of resentment further to come back to ContraPoint's um, Natalie Wynn that I referenced earlier on she has a really fantastic video which is entitled Envy and she breaks down the concept of envy and how it differs from jealousy and also does quite a thorough deconstruction of Nietzsche's um, Nietzsche's uh, theory of resentment politics and it's it's quite extensive and it's very applicable to a lot of the things that we've been talking about tonight and a lot of things that we're seeing going on in the world. Um, She is a a YouTuber now, but she describes herself as an ex-philosopher, as she did pursue that in her university career. And she's very, very articulate and extremely funny. And so I just want to say thank you so much to Tim and Alison for being with us tonight. I feel like it's been a really fascinating night. You both brought so much, so much, rich concepts to us and i'm so thankful for you being able to share all of that with our community both here with us tonight and whoever may tune in um, and watch after the fact once this is a part of our youtube channel and also turned into our podcast which is available on spotify and apple podcasts and stitcher amongst other places and so thank you so much for being here and also thank you so much for everybody who is here with us tonight because without people um, wanting to participate in this conversation as a viewer and to ask your own questions, we wouldn't really have any reason for being here. So thank you to everyone tonight. And I wish you all safe passage out into the uncertainty that is our world and negotiating all of these questions we talked about tonight. So thank you. And uh, we'll see you in November with uh, Professor Sarah Joseph to get into the concept of freedom. Thank you, everyone. Good night. You've been listening to Critical Conversations, a series addressing the knowledge crisis. As you leave this particular conversation, we hope that you leave it with usable tools that you can bring to the critical conversations in your own lives to help you successfully navigate them and engage in constructive dialogue. If you'd like to hear more critical conversations like these, feel free to click the subscribe button or join our Facebook group and follow our YouTube channel, which are both simply titled Critical Conversations. Until next time, stay safe, stay kind and stay critically engaged.